I, uh, my, favorite, my favorite covers are the ones that don't make sense until we start talking about stuff. Uh, <laughs> so I, last week I felt so cool because I, we did this message and I had this like very classic Christmas movie tie-in. Uh, this week I have no Christmas movie tie-in, but I do want to talk about uh, one of the most um, talked about filmmakers these days. That is uh, the one and only M. Night Shyamalan. Uh, so he, I think The Sixth Sense came out in 2000, 1999, maybe fall of 99, um, and created a huge buzz. It had Bruce Willis in it, uh, it had the first movie ever with Haley Joe Osment, who uh, was an incredible, uh, I think he was six or seven years old and got nominated for uh, an Academy Award that year. Um, and then, of course, it had a huge twist ending that no one saw coming, uh, which was what created so much buzz about the movie. And then he sort of became known for movies with the big twist at the end, right? And that, that I think, is the first thing that sort of caused him to be divisive because people started going into his movies waiting for the twist, right? What is the twist going to be and trying to figure it out? And I think the mov- his, watching one of his movies became more about treating it like a puzzle than like a story, you know? Can I figure it out before he tells me? Uh, and I, that, I think, got him in a lot of... It just got him to a place where people's expe- expectations of him were not what he wanted. So he started making these movies that I think very intentionally subverted expectations, which I found frustrating. The first one that it did it to me was The Village. I don't know if any of you have seen M. Night Shyamalan's The Village. But that movie was billed as a horror movie. If you go back and watch the original trailer, it looks like it's a, it's a, it's a scary movie, which is my love language, right? So I was all about it. I was like, ooh, I like M. Night Shyamalan, and I love horror movies, so I'm going to go. And if you've seen The Village, you know it's not a horror movie. Uh, it's it's at, at most a thriller, and the big twist at the end I thought was pretty silly, right? But I remember, I still to this day remember being in this movie and feeling like the movie had about 20 minutes left. You know that feeling where you're like, okay, it's kind of moving towards wrapping up, and realizing, okay, it's not going to be scary. If it hasn't been scary to this point, it's obviously not going to be scary. This is, and and I, I, I remember, like, in the middle of watching this movie, having this realization, oh, I had the wrong expectations about this movie. I was not enjoying it because it was not scary, but the movie itself never promised to be scary, right? It wasn't like it was trying to be scary and was just silly. No, it was just, like, not a horror movie. And whoever decided to market it as a horror movie, which is not the director, the director's not in charge of that, right? Um... So, so I, I, why it's so strange is because I remember sitting in the movie theater and like having to recalibrate my expectations like as the movie's still happening and trying to say, okay, I'm, I'm trying to let this movie be what it wants to be instead of trying to force it to be what I wanted it to be and then being mad that it's not the thing that I wanted it to be, right? Uh, and uh, again, I just don't think that movie's a great movie anyway, even if you get past that. Uh, but he's had a history of doing this, where, where he, will, he will head fake you now. I think, I think the twist is now less about the surprise ending of the movie than it is about what you're even getting into in the first place. His most recent movie, Glass, was like that. Um, it, was, it was sort of set up to be this big superhero movie. And instead he gives you the big superhero fight literally right at the beginning of the movie, and then the rest of the movie is something completely different. And I was grumpy because I wanted a big superhero fight. Uh, so anyway... I say all that because that's a very silly example of, I think, what you were singing about and what I want to talk about today, which is failed expectations or wrong expectations, right? Uh, When we have wrong expectations, when we are wanting something that was never promised to us, uh, 
that can lead to a lot of hurt and pain. And I mean, so can like broken promises, right? If I, if I, if I tell you I'm going to be somewhere or I tell you I'm going to do something and then I don't do it, obviously that creates hurt and pain. But two, uh, we all do this, right? We all have expectations of other people. We have, all have expectations of relationships that were never spoken out loud, that were never uh, explicitly or even implicitly promised. And then when those things don't happen, it hurts, right? It causes pain, it causes anger, uh, it causes disillusionment. And I think that happens not only in interpersonal, not only in movie theaters, not only in interpersonal relationships, but also in our faith. And uh, I don't know that there's a time other than Christmas where that's more apparent, right? Uh, where we have this gap between what we're celebrating, peace on earth, goodwill to all people, and then the world that we live in, which is certainly not experiencing peace right now, and where we certainly know not even probably most people are experiencing goodwill, let alone all. And so I think Advent is actually a really good time to ask, what does it look like for us to celebrate the coming of Jesus, prepare for Jesus' return in a world where uh, we maybe have uh, different expectations about what that looks like, and where we maybe are experiencing pain or hurt or doubt uh, specifically because some of those expectations have not come to fruition. So uh, in, in light of that, I want to invite us uh, to begin worshiping this morning in that spirit, in the spirit of trying to hold both of those things together, both the, the tension uh, of, of peace on earth and goodwill to all people and celebrating the coming of Jesus into our world, and then also the reality that the world is not as we wish it would be yet, and that we still have a lot of work to do to get there. So that, that's kind of where we're going to be today. And uh, because this is the season of Advent, we are going to light an Advent candle together. Every week we do this. We have someone from the congregation, either someone who's in person or someone who's virtual, uh, light an Advent candle and lead us in a reading of scripture that's, that frames our worship today. So we're going to invite the Neal family up, if y'all would come on up today. Uh, and then as they're coming up, I want to invite you once we're done, Nathan and uh, Cynthia and John are going to lead us in uh, a song together so that we can celebrate this faith. So would you welcome the Neal family? Uh, and it's, it's actually the way we begin our church year. The church begins with a season not of activity, but of waiting and of responding, uh, which I, and it was very countercultural, but I think there's a beauty in that, where our culture insists that, you know, the new year is time for uh, new resolutions and, and a resolve to do new things and uh, better ourselves and, you know, take the bulls by the proverbial horns. The church says, no, uh, we begin in a posture of receiving and of anticipation, and of waiting for God to act so that we can respond to what God is doing in our world. Uh, that's what Advent's about. And so this, this year, our Advent series is called I'll Be Home for Christmas, uh, which is, of course, a spin on the old carol. Uh, but it's also a recognition that we begin with Advent because Advent is really an anticipation of the second coming of God. Uh, we talk so much about preparing for Christmas, for the arrival of Jesus, because we believe Jesus will return. Jesus has not abandoned this world. And so we prepare for Jesus' return by looking at how our spiritual ancestors prepared for uh, God's first advent in the world. And so we're doing that this year by imagining what the world looks like when Jesus returns. We began by affirming that the world does belong to God and that God has not and does not plan to abandon the world. Uh, then last week, we looked at what it looks like for us to prepare ourselves. That's why we talked about a Christmas carol, right? What, what if we're all more like Ebenezer Scrooge than we thought? And what do we need to do to prepare ourselves to respond to God's coming? So today, we're going to shift 
uh, towards, I think, maybe an even more difficult question, which is when we are engaged in the public work of good, right? When, we're, when, our, when our commitment to be holy the way God is holy is, is oriented not just inward at ourselves, but outward towards the world. When we are working with God to make earth as it is in heaven, uh, we often run into pain because our world is not the way it is in heaven. We, we know that our world is not the way God desires it to be, and we see the, the pain and the suffering in the world, and we know that uh, we have a lot of work to do. And it can be, honestly, it can be defeating. We can look around at, at the fact that there is not peace on earth, that there is not goodwill towards all people, and we can feel despairing. We can wonder how much longer this can go on, how much longer we can go on. Uh, and so again, as I suggested earlier, I think Christmas is actually a really good time to lean into that question because it's the time that we're most, I think, most aware of the difference between the way we want the world to be and the way we experience the world. And, and there are kind of two responses that, that I think I see people make. Uh, and the one we, we talked about a little bit in the first week, which is that sort of escapism, right? That escape into sentimentality where we fire up the 75 new Hallmark movies that came out yesterday and we watch them all and they're all the same uh, and they all end the same and they're all predictable, but that's what we like, right? We, we, all, the, all of our Christmas movies are comedies, right? They all end with weddings, not funerals uh, or whatever. And, and we like that. We like the predictability of it. We like watching, knowing that no matter how bad or how scary things get, uh, they're going to end well, uh, because that's not the way our world is. And so we like to sort of hide in the sentimentality of the season, right? Uh, now, others of us, and I, I admit this is, this is where I tend towards, others of us see the pain of the world, and it's hard for us to celebrate it all when there's so much suffering, I feel maybe a little guilty about it, right? Why, why should I be enjoying this when so-and-so fill in the blank, right, with whatever, whatever particular kind of suffering has come across your timeline today? And so I want, I want to suggest that the beauty of the season of Advent specifically is that it allows us to hold these two impulses together, the desire to celebrate and the desire to face the real pain of the world. We can do both of these things uh, without having to choose between them without having to feel like we can only go one way or the other. Uh, Advent is the, the thing that bridges that gap and insists that a real authentic celebration of Jesus's coming into the world is one that acknowledges the real pain of the world, but in a way that celebrates the good news that God has entered into that suffering and is at work among us and with us, calling us to join him. Okay? So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 11. If you have one of the free Bibles in the back, that's on page 584. And as you are turning to Matthew 11, this is another story about John, John the baptizer who we met last week. Now, last week we were introduced to John sort of at the beginning of Jesus's ministry. It was, and John was this prophetic figure who, you know, looked like Elijah reborn and who had a very stark message of warning and repentance for all of God's people. And he was preparing God's people for the arrival of God's Messiah. He was there to lay the groundwork for Jesus's ministry. Well, in the interim time, Jesus has begun his ministry, and uh, he began it uh, in Luke chapter 4. He goes to his hometown of Nazareth, and he began it by reading a, a passage from the book of Isaiah and announcing it 
basically, you can think of it today as his mission statement, right? So I actually want to read that passage for us because it, it really comes into play in this story we're going to read about John. Okay, so this, this is not in Matthew 11, which is where I told you to turn. You're, you're okay, right? We're just going to hold that thought and go over to Luke chapter 4, and I want to read what happens when Jesus makes his first announcement of his public ministry, okay? So he's in the synagogue, it's the Sabbath day, and here's what happens in Luke chapter 4. It says, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed him. Remember, they didn't have Bibles, they had to do scrolls, right? So he was like, I'm going to teach out of Isaiah today. And they go get the scroll off the shelf, and he you know, unrolls it over to where he needs to be. And then he says, he reads, he found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Now remember, this is Isaiah's, these are Isaiah's words, right? The spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has announced, uh, he has anointed me, and that anointed there, by the way, in Hebrew, that's uh, Messiah, right? In Greek, it's Christ, okay? So he has, he has made me the Messiah, the anointed one, to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that the captives will be released. That's important. Hold on to that, right? The captives will be released. The blind will see. The oppressed will be set free and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. Okay, so he reads that and he rolls the scroll back up. He hands it back to the attendant and he sits down. Now, in Jesus' day, you sat down to teach. I know I said, but you know, a lot of times, a lot of times we're going to say something important. It's like, right? And their day it was like, okay? So he sat down. So now he's about to actually tell them what he came here to tell them, Right? He sat down, and all eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently, and then he began to speak to them. The scripture you have just heard has been fulfilled this very day. Okay? So he said, Isaiah had this dream about a person that God would anoint as the Messiah to announce good news to the poor, and to give sight to the blind, and to set the oppressed free, and to liberate the captives, and today's the day, folks, okay? So this is Jesus declaring, I'm the one. I'm the one you've been waiting for. I am the Messiah, okay? That was the first thing Jesus did, and then he goes around Galilee doing all of these things, right? Now, in the meantime, John had not stopped doing John's stuff, right? Wearing the camel hair, eating the locusts and the honey, uh, calling people to repent, and John got crossways with the king of that part of Israel. It was a guy named Herod Antipas, okay? And there was some weird family stuff. All the Herods had weird family stuff, but this guy had married his brother's wife. There was some messy family drama, and John didn't like it. And you can probably imagine if John didn't like something, you didn't have to guess, right? So John had gone around saying that Herod's marriage was sinful, that it was a crime against God, and that as the ruler of God's people, Herod was opening himself and the people up to judgment. Herod arrested John, threw him in prison, and this is where this story happens, okay? John has been faithfully doing what God called him to do, preaching repentance, right? Y'all need to get right because God is about to show up, Right? God's anointed is here, and you need to make sure that you're ready. And that includes everyone from the poorest peasant to the king. And John's faithfulness has landed him in prison. And John's cousin, who is the guy, the, the one, right? John's the guy behind the guy, he's the guy, 
is going around saying, I am here to liberate the captives. So if you're John, this is not hard math, right? Your cousin is the guy. And he said he was going to liberate the captives. And you're in prison for being faithful to God. This is easy. But John's still in prison. So finally, he sends word to Jesus. And this is what we're going to read, right? Okay, so let's read, beginning in verse 2 of Matthew chapter 11. John the Baptist, who was in prison, heard about all of the things the Messiah was doing. So he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, Are you the Messiah we've been expecting? Or should we keep looking for someone else? Jesus told them, Go back to John and tell him what you have heard and seen. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cured, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised to life. And the good news is being preached to the poor. And tell him, God blesses those who do not turn away because of me. There are people who hear in John's words doubt. I can't help but hear challenge, right? Hey, cuz, you're the Messiah, right? You're the one who gives sight to the blind and preaches good news to the poor and releases the captives? Right? This is your buddy John, in prison, captive. And Jesus' response, I mean, it just, it just staggers me every time I read it. He says, go back to John and tell him what you've seen and heard. And then he basically starts ticking off boxes from the Isaiah prophecy, right? Yep, this is happening. Yep, this is happening. Yep, this is happening. And he specifically leaves out that captives are being freed. The one thing that John was interested in, right? And then he says, blessed is the one who doesn't turn away because of me. Other translations read, blessed is the one who's not offended by this. Excuse me? I mean, this, friends, this is a difficult word. It's difficult for me to read. I honestly can't imagine what it was like for John to hear it. For John to be told, John, you're not getting out. Yeah, I'm who you think I am. Yeah, all that stuff is true. But I'm not coming for you. And then this sort of tag that says, uh, I know what I'm doing, right? Blessed is the one who does not take offense at me. Blessed is the one who doesn't turn away because of this. A call for John to remain faithful even when Jesus has told him, you're not getting out. Now, I, w- I want to I pause here um, because this is that part of the Advent that I was saying, this is where the world is not the way we wish it was, right? People like John suffer. People who are deeply faithful to God do not get wealth and riches, right? Instead, we suffer. And we reach out to God and we say, hey, do you remember us, right? What happened to that, like, blessed are those, you know, all, where, where, where is our reward? Where is our hope? And I just, I don't want to rush past that. I, I, want, I want us to try to take Jesus at his word, that blessed are those who are not turned away because of this. Because I genuinely don't think he was just trying to brush off John. I genuinely think he was saying, yes, this is a hard, messy thing. It's complicated. And the way through this is to respond by faith. 
even when you don't have the answers, even when it doesn't make sense. So I want to invite the worship team back up, and I want to invite you to return into worship with me. And I want, uh, if if you're in that space where things don't make sense and things are difficult, I want to invite you to bring that into this next song um, and to just not feel like you can't be honest about those things as you are worshiping. Because that's what Jesus told John, right? Uh, Jesus didn't say, hey, buddy, turn that frown upside down. He didn't say, oh, yeah, you're in prison. That's pretty bad. But, uh, you know, think about all the good stuff in life. He didn't brush away John's problems. He acknowledged them. But then he said, John, this is a time for faith. So, so would you join me in singing together? And, and again, bring, bring with you into this uh, whatever, whatever is in your spirit right now. Uh, no matter how, how good or bad, and I'm going to use those terms sort of ironically, right? Because I, I think all of these things are, are legitimate, and God wants us to be honest in our worship. So would you bring those with us? Would you stand with me as we, uh, as we sing this song? Uh, so again, remember that John is in prison, so he sent his disciples to Jesus. And the picture that Matthew is painting here is that Jesus is actually like sort of in the middle of teaching, and some of John's disciples come up and ask this. And so Uh, It's a really interesting sort of public moment that Jesus uh, takes advantage of here because the people in Galilee know who John is. He's quite famous by this point. They likely know uh, that Jesus and John are related. Uh, They certainly know that they're they're teachers of a kind, right? That that their ministries are related to one another. Uh, And so they're sort of waiting to see, I think, how Jesus responds to this and uh, Jesus takes full advantage of that fact to turn and challenge the crowd. So I want to read on and see what Jesus says about John to the crowd of people who are watching this exchange happen. Uh, so this is in verse 7, and uh, read through 11. So as John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began talking about him to the crowds. Now, what kind of man did you go into the wilderness to see? Was he a weak reed swayed by every breath of the wind? Obviously. Obviously not, right? If you were here last week. Uh, Or were you expecting to see a man dressed in expensive clothes? No. People with expensive clothes live in palaces. There's a nice little dig at the guy that jailed John, right? Were you looking for a prophet? Yes. And he's more than a prophet. John is the man to whom the scriptures refer when they say, Look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare your way before you. I tell you the truth, of all who have ever lived, none is greater than John the Baptist. And yet, even the least person in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he is. This is quite a statement for Jesus to make. John is the greatest person who has ever lived. That includes guys like Noah, uh, Moses, Abraham, right? Heroes of God's people. And yet Jesus says, none of them hold a candle to John. John is the greatest of them who has ever lived. And again, these, these are the people, they know this, right? They went out, they sought him out. Many of them traveled uh, probably dozens of miles to see John. And then Jesus says, but even John is less than the least person in the kingdom of heaven, which is what, how Jesus referred to this thing he was inaugurating, right? The kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, this, this new thing that he is bringing into the world, this new reality that is bursting forth because of his work and his teaching. Jesus says, even someone like John has to start from scratch if they want to be a part of this new thing. 
If you know what happens to John, you know that this story is absolutely devastating. John does not get out of prison. Uh, Herod Antipas actually has him beheaded. And when news of that reaches Jesus, this is where we see uh, how to interpret Jesus' response to John. Because I think you could read it as glib, as flip, as dismissive. But when word of John's execution reaches Jesus, uh, Jesus is absolutely devastated. He actually leaves the crowds that he's teaching. He leaves his disciples and he retreats into the wilderness where he can grieve alone. And I mean, think about it, right? You are, you are the creator of the universe incarnate. You can make stars by speaking. The power that you have at your disposal is infinite. And this person who is not only a family member, but a ministry partner, someone who is a part of bringing this new thing into the world, has been arrested. And you could free him by just speaking the word. And he comes to you and he asks, cousin, help. And you know that that's not the plan. You know that there's something bigger going on here. And so you have to say no. No wonder he was devastated. But I think this is a good reminder for us that Jesus' story is not a triumphalist story. Jesus' story is one that included incarceration and execution just like John. And in fact, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would follow me, they too must deny themselves and pick up their cross and get in line. So when Jesus is telling the crowds that if they're impressed by John, even someone like John has to relearn what story he's a part of, well, this is what Jesus means, right? That to follow him is not a way out of the suffering of the world. To follow him is not a rubber stamp guarantee that you're going to be hashtag blessed. To follow him, in fact, may mean the exact opposite. The more faithful you are to Jesus, the more you may pay for it. Because the powers of this world are against him. And that's a difficult truth to learn. Again, it cuts, it cuts against what we've been talking about every week of this Advent series, that, that we want an escapist, triumphalist God who's just going to come in and scoop us out and take us off to glory. But I would remind you that the Christmas story is good news precisely because God does not abandon our world to the forces of evil. God enters into our world in the most insane way possible as a defenseless impoverished baby and we say we we celebrate that we say this is why the world should rejoice this is the source of peace on earth this is why all people can experience goodwill this is why the little town of Bethlehem is blessed. So Jesus was right. Jesus was right. There was something bigger going on that John couldn't see. And so that's why he invited John to respond in faith and trust 
that God will not abandon him, that in fact, even the dead can be raised. Jesus was right. But friends, John had a point, right? It's okay that he was angry. It's okay that he felt betrayed. It's okay that he had questions. And Advent is a season that allows us to hold both of those things in tension, right? We can grieve the state of our world, the state of our lives, the state of our relationship, and we can also celebrate that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. The one who doesn't ignore or leave us in our pain, but who comes among us and enters into that with us and even goes ahead of us into it. And that's something that's worth celebrating, I think. So we're going to respond today by coming to the communion table, by receiving communion together, uh, as a way of remembering that this was Jesus's uh, journey to his own death, right? This was his journey to the cross, and he was inviting us into that space, inviting us to participate in his death in this way. And so we too can come to this table in a spirit of celebration and anticipation, knowing that however we come, whether we come in joy or in pain and sorrow or in some mixture of those things, God is present with us in that. And before we come to the table, I'm going to lead us in a prayer of examine. I'm going to give you some questions to consider uh, and just ask real honestly, where are the joys in this season for you? Where are the pains? And how is God, how is God inviting you to, to hold those together and not, not ignore either one of them during this Christmas season? Uh, and then after that, we'll pray together and we'll receive communion together. So uh, in that spirit, here's the first question I want you to consider in, in a spirit of prayer. How is joy present in this season for you? Where are you finding joy? Now, where do you see or, or experience uh, doubt and pain this season? Now, in light of all of those, what does it look like for you to respond in faith in this season? Pray together.
God, you have gathered us this day uh, to face the difficult reality that we live in a world that is far from the way you created it to be, that is far from the way things are in heaven. And we confess that it is difficult for us sometimes to face that reality, to live with that reality. And so we want to escape into sentimentality, uh, to hide from the pains of the world. And yet we have seen that that is not what you do. That in fact, the very Christmas story is one of you entering into uh, an incredibly fractured world as a, on a mission to bring peace and healing. So we approach your table this morning with all kinds of different emotions and reactions and pains and experiences. And we bring them and we offer them uh, at your feet. And in return, we receive these elements. And we pray as we receive them that they would be a spiritual food for us, that in receiving these elements together, we might find uh, a peace and hope and be able to uh, both celebrate and, and lament together uh, as we approach the Christmas celebration. We're after these prayers now when we approach your table in the name of your son, Jesus. The night that Jesus was betrayed, this is the meal that he shared with his disciples. And during that meal, he took bread and broke it and gave it to them. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Take it and eat it. Uh, when the meal was finished, he gave them a cup of wine. And he said, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Take it and drink it. And so now we too eat and drink. And as we do, we remember Jesus' death until he returns. Uh, friends, as we're going today, I want to thank all of you who are continuing to give here at Catalyst and enable us to continue to do this week after week. Um, and to those of you who have given to the Advent Fund, uh, whether through physical donations or, or monetarily, thank you again for helping us support uh, Vita Victoriosa down in Chihuahua City. And of course, thank you to our volunteers every week. I feel like I couldn't say that enough, uh, but I'm just going to keep doing it. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So uh, as you're going, uh, Catalyst, I'd like you to stand. I want to dismiss you with a blessing today. Uh, I know that this, is, this can be a, a challenging word, and so I just want to uh, send you uh, knowing that the God who created you and called you is the one who continues to work with you and within you and among you. And so there is nowhere you can go this week, uh, physically or emotionally or spiritually, that God has not already gone before you. Uh, would you go knowing that and knowing that because God is with you, you can have the courage uh, both to celebrate and to grieve and to do all of that in a spirit of authentic and honest uh, worship. Go in the grace and peace of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and we'll see you next week.